0: Alexandra Burke, um, uh, one singing uh, Alleluia, written by Leonard Cohen. And uh, it's a very catchy song, I'm sure you've all heard it by, by now. But it, of course it, it fascinated me, it caught my attention partly because it has that very biblical word in it so prominently, the word Alleluia. I thought I could praise the Lord singing that, um, uh, uh, that chorus. I thought I'd better, though, have a little look at what the song is really all about. I noticed when I, start, when I looked at the lyrics that it is exploring some biblical themes. It talks about King David. I heard there was a secret chord that David played. And it pleased the Lord. It's clearly alluding to King David there, who uh, as a young man in particular was uh, employed by Saul to play music uh, to keep Saul from going completely insane. The rest of the song, I have to say, is distinctly confusing, if you've tried to uh, understand it. But uh, here's my best effort to try to uh, interpret it, partly from Leonard Cohen's own, own lips. The internet's a wonderful thing. The song Hallelujah is really a commentary on life. And Leonard Cohen, being a Jew, used King David in particular as his example. He um, uh, picks on David's ability with music to symbolise David's almost miraculous powers, his his, his almost miraculous ability to bring peace and happiness into the world. But um, uh, as we know, and as Leonard Cohen points out, David sinned. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, when he saw her bathing on the roof, or as the song goes, your faith was strong but you needed proof, you saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. And then here is Leonard Cohen's conclusion. His conclusion is, imperfection is all you can hope for. Listen to this key verse. Well, maybe there's a God above, but all I've ever learned from love is how to shoot somebody who outdrew you. It's not a cry that you hear at night, it's not somebody who's seen the light. It's a cold and it's a broken, hallelujah. And he explained in 1985 to a reporter, what he meant by that. He says, hallelujah is a Hebrew word which means glory to the Lord. He's actually wrong about that. It means praise the Lord, but we'll forgive him that. The song, he says, explains that many kinds of hallelujahs do exist. I say all the perfect and the broken hallelujahs have an equal value. It's, as I say, a desire to affirm my faith in life, not some formal religious Uh, but with enthusiasm, with emotion. He wants to say, life is deeply imperfect, life is always cold, always broken, but in the midst of that coldness and that brokenness, perhaps there is an alleluia that you can sing to whoever or whatever. In many ways, he's captured one key theme in the Old Testament. It may be very significant that he is a a Jew and was brought up with an understanding of the message of the Old Testament. There is a key theme in the Old Testament. Indeed, it, it is the story that runs through the Old Testament. This story says, nobody, but nobody... Not even King David can bring to true joy and happiness into this world. All the hallelujahs in the Old Testament are, as Leonard Cohen puts it, cold and broken. And King David stands as the, the epitome of that because he's the one who seems to almost do it. He's the one who rises to the heights um, uh, that, that the Old Testament had predicted a king would rise. He rules over the united people of God. He establishes the law. He, uh, uh, um, he establishes the worship of God as, uh, as central in, uh, amongst the people of God. And it's David, this greatest of all kings, who commits one of the worst sins. Not only adultery, but murder of Bathsheba's husband. The Old Testament is saying, as Leonard Cohen says, nobody's going to bring, no human being is ever going to bring perfection into this world. Perhaps we should just be content with our cold and broken hallelujahs. But you see, the Old Testament has another strand in it, which Lenin Cohen has missed completely and yet is absolutely vital, particularly at this time of year. It says though, a true joy-giver will come. David didn't manage it. No Old Testament character uh, manages it. But a true joy-giver will come. Jesus, for instance, when he had arrived, spoke to the Jews of his day and says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. Abraham looked forward to that great day, the day when Jesus arrived. Or King David himself in Psalm 16 says, My heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will live in hope. There is a future hope in David's heart. Actually, that, that he will rise from the dead, that he will be risen, that he will live eternally, and he rejoices in that hope it's because of that that, that, that um, Old Testament expectation which yearns and longs and strives and searches for the future hope. It's because of all that built up, uh, pent up desire that that Mary's song, the Magnificat, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, is so magnificent because she says, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, because Jesus is coming. A true joy giver is going to come, says the Old Testament. And the New Testament said, It has. That day has come. He has come in Jesus Christ. I want want to remind you just for a few minutes of, of, of the dimensions of that joy, of the reasons for that joy that Old Testament saints only longed for and looked forward to. So that you can Hopefully leave this place with a bit, a bit more of a spring in your step, a bit more confidence, a bit more, a, 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 a bit more joy as you think, as you face 2009. Let, let me just remind you of what Jesus has done. Nothing new here, but let, let, let me impress it upon your hearts today. See, the birth of Jesus anticipates, more than anything else, his death. He humbled himself to a manger, but he humbled himself, says Paul in Philippians, even to death on a cross. The arrival of Jesus, God made man, is the beginning of a process that 30 or so years later will result in God-made man paying for all our sins on the cross. You are completely forgiven. In Christ alone, that hymn that we possibly sing too much, but which is magnificent, says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me you can live a guilt-free life not a sin-free life but a life that as if as you sin you turn back quickly to Christ and you seek his forgiveness and you seek his power to uh, set out again following Jesus Christ if you live a life like that you do not need to wallow in guilt, and you do not need to fear death. You do not need to fear what God will say when you meet him face to face. If you have lived a life like that, that turns back to Christ regularly again and again and again, then you will, when you meet Christ face to face, hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You would hear him say, I paid for all your sins on the cross. You need have no fear. All the Old Testament saints saw that imperfectly. They had to survive with, with sacrifices repeated again and again. They longed for the day when finally God's people would see and know full and complete forgiveness. And that was achieved for you if you're a Christian here today in Jesus. I wonder how many of us when we thought a little earlier about what we regret or what we mourn in 2008, thought about our own sins. I did. And they're painful, aren't they? It's painful to be reminded of how wayward our heart is so often. How easily we go astray. And we must be honest, sometimes there are lingering, ongoing consequences of our sins that will cause us continued, ongoing pain. But let me lodge this clearly in your mind. There is no ongoing punishment for your sins if you're a Christian and you have sought God's forgiveness. There is no punishment in the sense of God requiring a penalty to be paid by you. There cannot be. God will not punish sins twice and he punished, he paid the penalty for your sin in Christ's body, on the cross. That doesn't mean to say that there may, be, that may not be ongoing, uncomfortable um, consequences of your sin. But the, the New Testament describes those consequences as God's discipline for us. Treat, he's treating us like, like he, uh, 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 he is a father and he's treating us like children. He is not saying, you must pay the price for that. He's saying, you need to learn some lessons, dear child. And the only way I can do it sometimes is through some painful consequences of your sins. But I'm not making you pay the penalty. Jesus paid that penalty. I'm training you. I'm disciplining you. No discipline is easy at the time. It is uncomfortable says the writer to the Hebrews. But it is not making you pay for your crimes. It is God helping you to grow as a believer. There is no punishment, no condemnation, no penalty left to be paid for your sins if you are a Christian here this morning and you have sought God's forgiveness. He forgives and he will not make you pay the price. He paid the price. The birth of Jesus then is the beginning of a process that leads leads to your The complete forgiveness of your sins. The birth of Jesus is the beginning of a process that will one day lead to your resurrection life. God became a human being. God the Son died on the cross and now God the Son, this human being, on the third day rose from the dead. As the assurance, as the promise, that other human beings like him, you and I, will also rise from the dead, will also enjoy resurrection life. Some of us here, probably a large proportion of us here, have ailing bodies. Sometimes it's in trivial things like colds and snuffles of Christmas. Sometimes it's in major things that make life deeply uncomfortable. And to be honest, every day remind us that our body is heading for death. It's heading for resurrection too. heading for a new bodily existence in which we will be liberated from our bondage to decay, in which we will live a new physical life, no longer impeded by the curse of death. Jesus began that process when he was born in that manger. New Testament says several, some other things that started to become concrete at the birth of Jesus as well. The birth of Jesus stands as the promise of God's absolute faithfulness. That's all over the place, for instance, in in Luke's Gospel at the beginning when when Mary and then Zechariah speak of God's faithfulness to his promises, to his people. God had promised that a joy-giver would come and God kept his word in Jesus. That's... Faithfulness of God is extraordinary when you, put, when you, when you plot it through the, through the New Testament. The New Testament makes extraordinary strong statements about God's faithfulness to his people. Let, let, me, let me just remind you of one of the strongest ones. God turns every single circumstance that we ever have for good. In all things he works for good. That doesn't mean to say that no bad thing will come our way. Yes, real evil still exists in this world and real evil can and does do us real damage in one sense. But real evil is not an independent power that somehow can defeat the purposes of God, real evil still sits under the sovereign hand of God. And God takes even real evil and moulds it in his hands. He says, I'm going to make something good come out of that. I'm going to make that that suffering that that person is enduring also create in them wonderful, peaceful, resilience so that they shine the glory of Jesus through that uh, that difficult circumstance. I'm going to take that deep, crushing disappointment that that person is going to have to endure and I'm going to shape it and mould it in their hand, in my hands, in their life. So that out of it comes a bright confidence in our eternal future that just couldn't have shone in that way unless they'd had to endure that difficulty and suffering. The arrival of Jesus is a mark of God's complete faithfulness and the Bible says that that complete faithfulness for his people goes down to the tiniest detail. Everything is used for our ultimate good. Now let's not be superficial about that doesn't mean to say that there will be nothing painful that ever happens to us. We know that is not true and the Bible never claims it. And it doesn't mean to say that our superficial ideas of what is good for us will be pandered to either. Um, uh, Paul goes on in, in Romans 8 in the very next verse after saying that all things work together for the good of those who love him, to say that that good is that we would be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Let's be clear about that. That is God's project in our lives. Not always our project in our lives, but it is God's project in our lives, to conform us to the likeness of Christ. And that is not always going to be easy. It doesn't always lift the gloom of a difficulty that may, may, may come our way. Far from it. Sometimes it will be hard fought over many years. In 2009, who knows, maybe just a small step in that big process. But it is a real good that God is creating in your life. Real, positive Good. Some of us will face more trials of ageing in this coming year. Most of us have to endure that. And amazingly, God uses it in so many lives to produce a serenity and a peace and a gentleness and a patience in people of senior years that they would have longed to have had 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's only the difficult process of ageing that has been used by God to create that. Some of us will face trials in family. Don't know what they'll be. It's only as we sometimes endure real difficulty in human relationships that we find a sweetness in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of us will face trials in the workplace. Perhaps we will find our job boring or frustrating or Work colleagues will not treat us properly or maybe we'll even lose our job. But for many of us, it is only as we learn to faithfully serve God every day that we we discover that he gives power again and again and he forgives us when we fail and he sets us on our feet and he helps us to go to work every day and to serve faithfully. Do not learn that in a vacuum. You do not learn that when we all trippingly go to work every, every morning. And some of us will face the trials of youth, even us who are older, you know, face the trials of youth, particularly at unruly passions. Oh, God is not unwise, you know. He trains us and helps us to be self controlled, to be disciplined, to treat other people appropriately through those difficult young days. God is absolutely faithful. Jesus came to forgive sins. Jesus came ultimately to promise us resurrection life. Jesus came to demonstrate the faithfulness of God which is there in your life. And Jesus came as well to demonstrate God's commitment to being alongside us. Not the far off, distant, up there Way beyond the clouds, God, but it's here and a uh, present reality, God. He did that for a lifetime in Jesus, but Jesus was quite specific. That when He departed, that here with us ministry of God would continue, would continue by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was not poured out in, its, uh, in, in, in his fullness until Jesus had come and begun now a new moment in history in which God is alongside his people. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.5 speaks of our future hope and then he says this hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us you see God just didn't just tell us certain truths he didn't just say your sins are forgiven your promised resurrection life you are promised Uh, I promise you that in all things I work for your good. He also knew that there is a hardness in our heart, a rebellion in our heart that needed to be dealt with personally by him. And so he said, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to help you to, to feel those things, to know those things deep in your heart as well. It's not just truth out there, it is truth in here that I'm interested in. And I will do that by my Spirit. Let me say, that is not necessarily easy. Sometimes we need to pray long and hard. Sometimes we learn to need, to, uh, need to learn patience, where we will just put one foot in front of another, serving the living God and seeking for the Holy Spirit To really pour out His love into our hearts so that we have joy. Sometimes we will find that those experiences come fleetingly as a promise and then they, then they disappear. And uh, once again we are, we are struggling and it is hard and it is tough. But God's commitment is to be alongside you. He began it in Jesus. He continues it in his Holy Spirit. He is committed to you knowing how wide and long and high and deep is his love. Not just up there, but in there. The Old Testament had to do with broken and cold, hallelujahs, enlivened just by the hope of the future. But the New Testament says that day has come, the day of forgiveness, the day when resurrection life appears, the day when we can finally see and know that God works for good in all of God's people, the day when we finally can enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I want to suggest to you, just a suggestion, you may be, have something else that is more precious to you, that Philippians 4.4 might be something to dwell on. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. This is not some superficial um, uh, uh, quip of a bit of advice that Paul attacks on at the end, um, like uh, uh, that song, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, or, or something like that. It really is not. This is the Apostle Paul languishing in prison, facing potential death, having faced enormous troubles and difficulties and having come through that fire with a sense of joy that is very deep, very profound and that he wants these people to share with him. Rejoice in the Lord, he says, always. I think that's very significant. In other words, it's our our being in the Lord it's our relationship with Jesus Christ it's the fact that we have been uh, become the body of Jesus it's the fact that we are united with Jesus now so that we are our sins are covered by him so our resurrection hope is is assured by him that we can rejoice he knows that that sort of joy is hard one I, I have to say it's more common in those in the last few years of their life than in the first few because it takes time for god to grow that in our lives but that is what god intends to do with us for our good, he wants us to people to be people who discover that true joy. How do we do it? Well there's a question isn't there. Let me suggest just a couple of things. Meditate deeply on scripture. Don't let scriptures wash past you. Think about them. Reflect on them. Let them them settle deeply in your mind. Apply them to your circumstances. What does this truth mean for me? Work at it. Think about it. Apply it. And then pray. Pray hard. Pray that God would pour out his... Love into your heart by his Spirit. Pray that God would give you eyes to see. Pray that, pray that God would help you to understand enough about your circumstances now to help you to get a glimpse and a glance of the good that he is doing in your life so that you can be encouraged, so that you can find that joy. Pray. And learn to think as every life event comes your way. Learn to think beyond the joy and the trial of that life event to something deeper. What good can this life event bring into my life? What, what will it do? It's it's exciting, it's great, it's 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 wonderful, it's joyful. Well, you may think you've exhausted what good it can bring into your life, but no, turn all of those good things into praise of God, the giver of good things. It's hard, it's tough, it's miserable, it's horrible. You may think you've said all that there is to say about that Difficult event that's covered your life. But no, it's going to be turned by God into something good in me. I want to see what that is and I want to grasp it and I want to, I want to hang on to it. I want it, want it to produce that good. It's produced enough bad in my life, I want it to produce the good in my life. couple of examples from Philippians 4, just to finish. Paul had his own credit crunch. He lived in a very uncertain um, relationship with money. But he says in verse 11, I'm not saying this, that he's requesting some money because I'm in need, for I'm... Uh, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in every, uh, any and every situation. I have a friend who works in the city. She's um Manager of unit trusts, which means virtually nothing to me and I don't, it might need, mean something to you. But uh, she was telling me that, uh, telling Judy and I, that, that she's living, she's now meeting very frightened, very anxious, very upset people every day in the financial institutions. And she's not, she's a Christian. And she says to them, did you put all your trust in this? Did you think that it could never fall apart? I didn't. What about you, your financial situation? Will you shine the light of Jesus and find contentment, whatever? Whatever. And another thing Paul picks out in Philippians 4, relationships. I plead with Euodia, verse 2, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Relationships can rob rob us of our joy more than anything else, it seems to me. Agree in the Lord. You may not agree on whatever you're disagreeing about, but you can agree in the Lord. will our relationships reflect this confidence this contentment this profound rejoicing which is a characteristic that God wants to build into our lives rejoice in the Lord always I can't say it once says Paul I'm going to repeat myself I'll say it again Rejoice.